From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Colorado's lowest elevation just isn't celebrated like its highest is. There's not even a marker. That is, until we took a trip to Yuma County and met the landowner. When did you learn that your property included the lowest point in Colorado? When you called me. (laughs) Seriously? Seriously. Now there's a marker. Coming up, learn about the geology of this place and the people who've called it home, plus a special musical guest. Then, a once-in-a-lifetime launch. Next week, Artemis 1 blasts off with a mega rocket. The uncrewed mission is an important step as NASA scopes out a permanent lunar settlement, which might be a gateway to Martian missions. We'll meet a Colorado engineer who's on the project. Plus, first day of school hopes and jitters. If you're looking to get rid of a car, running or not, consider donating it to Colorado Public Radio. The process is simple. All you need is the title. We'll take care of the rest. The proceeds of your gift go into CPR's operating budget. Donating your car is a powerful way to support the news and music you value. Make a difference by donating your car to CPR. Start on the support page at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. In Colorado, the mountains get a lot of our attention. We're in the mountain time zone. One of our state songs is Rocky Mountain High. So it stands to reason that Mount Elbert at 14,433 feet is well known as Colorado's highest point. But what about its lowest? Okay, gentlemen, are you ready to hit the road? Yeah, let's go. Let's go. Three of us piled into a car with the GPS coordinates for Colorado's lowest spot, 3,315 feet, on the Colorado-Kansas line. In 1.1 miles, turn right to merge onto I-76 East. My company for the three-hour drive from Denver to Yuma County, Colorado, is geologist Matt Bauer. His business card is a sticker depicting a drill bit. It's used for drilling oil and water wells. So those knobby bits on there actually rotate and chip off little pieces of rock. Bauer is passionate about rocks. He's a vice president of the Rocky Mountain Association of Geologists, teaches at the Colorado School of Mines, and he's going to tell us the why behind Colorado's lowest point. My other passenger is a singer. Standing by a river About a hundred years ago A man set out to find His little pot of gold Forrest Kelly of Boulder is a member of the a cappella group Face Vocal Band. His tones are so dulcet, Fisher-Price made him the voice of a toy fire truck. We'll be there when you need help. Let's climb up high to help. The ladder comes down. I'm not going to tell you precisely why he's on board yet, but Matt and Forrest establish a quick rapport. Forrest mentions that his band has performed at Red Rocks. Matt's naturally fascinated by the amphitheater's geology. But the concert venue is now many, many miles behind us. We are approaching where Colorado, Nebraska, and Kansas meet. Matt, have you ever been to this particular part of, I guess it's the three corners here? I have not. Forrest, have you ever been to this part of the country? I have not. It's actually quite beautiful out here. 
Colorado's lowest elevation is on private land, and we are meeting one of the owners, Sally Linen, who's told us to look out for her old blue pickup. And there she is. Hi, Sally. Hi. It's nice to meet you. She's parked on a dirt road, her windows rolled down. I pull over for a quick chat. Will you tell us where we're headed? You're headed to the lowest altitude in Colorado, on the Rickery River. And this is your land? Yes. Ranch land? What is it? Yes, yes, it's pasture land. Pasture land. And do do you pasture cows on it? Uh, Normally, yes. It's been so dry this year, we don't have anything there. We have met just south of Hagler, Nebraska. And uh, tell us about the route that we'll take. Well, we'll go into Kansas and then back into Colorado and out through a wheat field and down on the riverbed. (laughs) We hop back in our cars and she leads the way down a few more dirt roads, then onto a two-track in the brush. We park and walk the rest of the way. This fence post is our state line marker. So we're right on the border now of Kansas and Colorado. Right. And that means we are how far away from the lowest point? It's right down there in those trees. Ah, where the greenery is. You can tell that's the Arikaree River. That's the Arikaree River, the dry Arikaree River. (laughs) It hasn't had any water in it for 10 years anyway. Do you remember that 10 years ago when you saw water? Oh, yes. Yeah. When I was a kid, it it was a wide river used to play in there, but but now, now I'll, if there's a flash flood, you might see some, but we haven't seen that for a long time either. How long has this land been in your family, Sally? This piece, just since 87. Just 87? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but my, my granddad homesteaded just over the hill here in 1906. When did you learn that your property included the lowest point in Colorado? Did you know that all the time? No. When you called me a month ago. <laughs> Seriously? Seriously. Yeah, we looked at the know. exact coordinates, and it's your land. So uh, we've learned this together. Yes. <laughs> yes. Singer Forrest Kelly walks with us. So does geologist Matt Bauer. Well, there's a coyote skull. Oh, yeah. Desiccated and deteriorating. We see a turtle, too, alive, then reach the river. Because it's dry, we can stand in the riverbed. The U.S. Geological Survey indeed recognizes this place as Colorado's lowest. But Matt looks for the lowest of the low and spots a hole where water might have eddied, if there were any. Whenever you have a stream, you can have other channels as the river meanders back and forth. So I wanted to make sure that there wasn't another channel that was deeper over on the other side. And then we went from the state line in to find this wash here. It looks like water had swirled around. And even though they were not exactly on the state line, we're a little bit farther into Colorado, this spot is definitely lower. And we know the lowest spot in Colorado is at the state line on the Arikaree. That's right. Again, the line with Kansas in this case. Sally has come prepared. You get the sense she always does. She has brought something to mark the spot with and hammers it into the ground. This is just a T-post that we're going to put at the lowest point. And I think it's exciting that you'll do the honors. Watching all this unfold is Boulder singer Forrest Kelly. 
As for why he's here, Forrest is a bass, and we asked him to sing his lowest note in the lowest spot. Are we doing this? Uh, I, well, it's not we. You, you're going to <laughs> do this, but yeah, it's, it's time. It's go time. All right, I'm doing this. All right, here we go. But the Colorado Rocky Mountain High, I've seen it rain and fire in the sky. The shadows from the starlight are softer than a lullaby. Rocky Mountain High, Colorado. Rocky Mountain High, Colorado. It's pretty low, anyway. <laughs> How low was the O in Colorado? I think that was maybe a... I think it was like a B, maybe. Not the super lowest note, but pretty low. I could probably sing a lower note if you want to just grab the lowest note. Sure. All right, let's see. Na, 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 na. Probably that one. The lowest note at the lowest spot in Colorado. And what do we think that note was? Ooh. But that's probably an A. A low A. (laughs) Rocky Mountain High. I love the irony, by the way, of that. Good job. Also, the state's second state song. That's right. It's a beautiful song, John Denver. Have you sung that before? I never have. I mean, you know, just in the car or whatever. But not not professionally. Right after a break, the geologic and human history of Colorado's lowest spot. How was this place formed and who has called it home? This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Music has this special ability to elevate the stories we tell, make you feel seen, help you to understand someone else's experience. That's part of the joy of listening to music and exactly what we're exploring in the CPR podcast, Music Blocks. Five-minute musical explorations to help inspire great conversations about music in classrooms and during family time. Season two of the award-winning podcast, Music Blocks, is all about the stories of our lives. Find it wherever you listen. Let's return to Yuma County, Colorado, at the Kansas border, where the Arikari River crosses is the state's lowest elevation at 3,315 feet. Until we tracked down landowner Sally Linen and asked if she'd give us access, she had no idea just how special her property is. But she has just hammered a marker into the ground, where I then stood with geologist Matt Bauer of Golden. Matt, you are holding a giant... What is that magenta book? Yeah, it's the Geologic Atlas of the Rocky Mountain region. This was published by the Rocky Mountain Association of Geologists. I mean, this looks like the kind of book that you might find on a special table in a library. If you can find one. They're all out of print and they're kind of hard to come by. What are you opening to now, delicately, on these pages? So we're actually going to look at some tectonic units. These are actually occurring down in the crystalline basement. These are below the sedimentary rocks that we're standing on top of. And even though these are low undulating hills here, there's actually a lot more going on in the basement. Underneath us. Underneath us. I guess the primary question is what makes this the lowest spot 
in Colorado? Does it have to do with the fact that we're standing in the Arikari Riverbed? That's part of it, but there's a lot more to it. So the Colorado Plateau, which we can actually see, which is west of us, past the Front Range, it actually keeps the rest of Colorado quite high. And we are situated on the eastern flank of what's called the Denver-Julesburg Basin. And the Hartville Uplift, which is up in Wyoming, and then the Los Animos Arch, which is down to our south, they kind of squeeze that basin on either side and produce this lowest point. And then the river is eroded that alluvium at the top and made a, a nice low spot for us to be in today. This is not an easy book to navigate, so you're actually going to put it on the ground, on the riverbed. Yes, so let's flip back over here and take a look at the Ogallala. So we can actually see where the Rockies are here, where you have erosion going on, and then that sediment being brought out towards the eastern plains. Oh, fascinating. So when we think of the plains and the mountains as being somehow separate, they're actually quite linked. Very much so. It's just mountains have been uplifted and eroded, and then that sediment being carried off into where you have more accommodation space. Now, you mentioned Ogallala, and that makes me think of the aquifers. So deep down below, is there water? Uh, There is. There's water in between those different pieces of sedimentary rock in the pore space. Um, And that's really important here for people that farm in dry land. Now, you have looked up some of the other low points in other states Mm -hmm. uh, to help us understand just how low or not we are. Put this low spot in Colorado into some perspective. Well, it's actually the highest low spot in all the 50 states. Also, our lowest point is higher than the highest point in 18 states and the District of Columbia. So in Colorado, to go low is quite a relative experience. It always is in Colorado. What are some of the standout facts you learned yourself about this spot, but also the area around it? You know, it was kind of interesting, the linking between geology and the human history here. The Hartville uplift, one of the reasons why this is the lowest point, it actually has the oldest red ochre mine in North America. Red ochre? Red ochre. So the Paleo-Americans were actually mining red ochre, which is a type of hematite for dye there. So they brought human activity into this area. Geologist Matt Bauer of Golden. Now, I'd intended to have one more expert along for the ride, but he wasn't able to make the trip. So I crossed my fingers for cell service and gave him a call from the lowest spot in Colorado. Sam, you there? Yeah, I'm here, Ryan. Hello. Hi, everyone. This is Sam Bach. He's the public historian at History Colorado. I guess maybe we could start with a rickery. A rickery is a reference to the Arikara people who call themselves the Sanish. Uh, that is the name for themselves. But a rickery uh, is a name they went by in the 19th century. And now today... They are one of the three affiliated tribes, which are also known as the Mandan, Hidatsa, and Arikara Nation. And where are they based today? They are based in central North Dakota today. Okay, I suspect that had something to do with white people moving them. What do you think? That's exactly correct, yes. They were moved out of their traditional homeland into a more convenient place for the American government. I know that you did some research for us about this spot. Uh, What did you turn up that stood out to you? What really stood out to me was that 
the lowest point in Colorado is actually also the site of some of the lowest moments in our history. And what I'm talking about is wars between the Plains tribes and the U.S. government that happened following the Sand Creek Massacre of 1864. This is after the Sand Creek Massacre. That's correct. Yeah. The Sand Creek Massacre really was this moment of ultimate betrayal when all of the Plains tribes that had been negotiating with the United States government, you know, as sovereign nations through this treaty process, really saw that the government wasn't negotiating in good faith and that they had no intention of keeping up their side of the bargain and would use force if necessary to remove those people from their homelands. Hmm. I think of the Sand Creek Massacre as in and of itself so singularly horrific, but the idea that it ushered in really a new era of non-cooperation is important information, Sam. I wonder if that's something that you think more people ought to know. I really do. And I think I think the people of the Plains really don't have a lot of opportunities reflect on, you know, the violence that preceded their ancestors or themselves settling on the Plains. And the reason is that the people who lived there before them had been violently removed to reservations far away. Now, earlier, Matt, our geologist, mentioned Paleo-Indians and the the reasons that they first came to this area. A part of it was to mine for what would become dye, what would become, you know, color. Um, Can you connect, like, the Paleo-Indians to the tribes that we know were removed? Yeah. You know, I think the Paleo-Indian label sometimes um, is useful. And sometimes, you know, it can make us think that these were separate peoples. But, you know, really, a lot of these tribes don't have stories that disconnect themselves from that far back. You know, their traditions stretch to those very peoples and to those places where they gathered, you know, these ceremonial dyes and times, or even just, you know, things that enriched the color of their lives. Um, you know, they went there for generations to obtain these dyes. So, you know, I think that's the connection is, you know, in these people's minds, these stories go back hundreds of generations. Their DNA is from these lands. And then we think about more contemporary settlers, for instance, of the homesteaders who carved out uh, what was a hard scrabble life for themselves. That's like Sally's family. Is this the site, for instance, of the Dust Bowl? Are we standing in Dust Bowl territory? Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, one of the most dramatic, consequential environmental disasters of the 20th century, and this is, you know, you're right in the heart of it, the stories that come from that time, you know, the desperate choices that these people had to make, they just are really mind-boggling. And, you know, at History Colorado Center, we have a whole exhibit about uh, what that was like for settlers at the time. I'll never forget the gentleman who told me that the dust storms were so intense, the chickens thought it was night and went in to roost. That detail will never exactly. leave my mind. Or cows' stomachs being filled with dirt, with sand from blowing around during the Dust Bowl. Sam, why do you think the mountains get so much darn attention? 
and these plains with layers of history and beauty. Uh, you know, they're less of the Colorado destination that you might see in the tourist ads. Yeah, well, I think the first thing is that the beauty of the mountains is more obvious than the beauty of the plains. You know, it's harder to appreciate the landscape uh, when the dominant color is brown between, you know, late July and early June, um, or I guess May. So, you know, there's that. But I also think that for a long time in American history, people understood the center of our continent as a desert. This vast, uh, you know, landscape between the Rocky Mountains and really the Mississippi River was understood to be uninhabitable. And, you know, that attitude kind of persisted, um, and it even persists today. You know, you hear a lot about Colorado being a flyover state. Uh, and I think, you know, people who say that really haven't spent a lot of time on the plains and don't understand how gorgeous it can be. Well, Sam, thanks for connecting with us. Thank you so much, Ryan. It was my pleasure to speak with you and my misfortune to not be there. Well, you are here in spirit, and I'm going to declare that you've been to the lowest spot in Colorado. I don't care what they say. Thank you. I'll take it. History Colorado's Sambach on a phone call I made from the lowest spot in Colorado, 3,315 feet on the Arikari River at the Kansas border in Yuma County. My thanks as well to geologist Matt Bauer of Golden, bass singer Forrest Kelly of Face Vocal Band in Boulder, and landowner Sally Linen. See photos from our road trip, a map, and a video of Forrest singing at CPR.org. And Colorado Matters continues into the next half hour to the moon. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News and KRCC. It's not certain who first put ham, onion, and bell peppers in the Denver omelet. It may have adapted from a Chinese dish called egg fu young that railroad workers might have adapted with ingredients easily found in the West. But a plaque in downtown Denver claims the omelet was, quote, developed to mask the stale flavor of eggs shipped by wagon freight. What's not in question is that the omelet first appeared as the filling in the Denver sandwich. In 1907, at least two Denver restaurants and one hotel declared they invented it. Portable, tasty, and packed with protein, the Denver sandwich was enjoyed by people from coast to coast and became extremely popular. However, by 1980, more and more diners were choosing the dish with cheese minus bread. It's hard to find a Denver sandwich on menus today, but the Denver omelet is still a low-carb favorite. A Colorado postcard from CPR with support from Dazzle Jazz celebrating 25 years. America is set to enter a new space age Monday. For the first time in 50 years, the U.S. is reaching for the moon. The Artemis mission is just a start. Eventually, NASA's goal is to build a moon base that may serve as a way station to Mars. Colorado's Lockheed Martin built the Orion spacecraft that is at the heart of this mission. Engineering manager Heather McKay has worked on the project for more than a decade. Heather, welcome to the program. 
Thanks for having me. Where are you going to be on Monday? I'll be at Kennedy Space Center on the causeway. I'm traveling down there Saturday with my family, my husband and my two kids, Miles and Bridget, along with 750,000 other people. Um, this is a really historic event for the history of human spaceflight, the, the, taking this next step as we return to the moon. Wait, they expect 750,000 people to gather in Florida to watch the launch? Correct. Okay. Correct. So I'll be on the causeway, which is just across the water from the launch with my family and hundreds of my coworkers. Um, it's just going to be really exciting, and, um, and I'm sure we'll be really proud to see our fingerprints Go, go into deep space for this test. Has there ever been as high stakes a launch as this for you? Is this the highest stakes launch? For me personally, yes. Uh-huh. Yes. The, the world hasn't seen something like this in over 50 years since we went back to the, went to the moon with the Apollo program. This is Artemis. Um, Artemis in Greek mythology is the twin sister of Apollo, which is Aww. interesting because the plan through the Artemis mission is to take the next, uh, the first woman and the first person of color to the moon to build, as you mentioned, um, a, a sustained lunar habitat so we can learn how to live and work in deep space and um, ultimately use that knowledge to leave the first footprints in the red dust of Mars. The red dust of Mars. Uh, this is like the biggest rocket ever, isn't it? It's the most powerful rocket. Uh-huh. So Artemis One will use NASA's space launch systems. It has 8.8 million pounds of thrust. Sitting on top of it will be this Orion spacecraft developed by Lockheed Martin, the only spacecraft designed to carry humans to deep space and return them safely back to Earth. Through the mission, um, it's an orbital flight test, uncrewed. It'll travel 280,000 miles from Earth, a thousand times further than the space station, further than um, any human-rated spacecraft has ever gone before, before returning at 24,000 miles an hour, splashing um, into into the ocean, into the Pacific Ocean. It's about a six-week mission, I guess, total. And yeah, then, so help me understand this with Orion. It, so it is capable, of course, of carrying people. It will not this time. This is a bit of a test. Right. The, the first time we launch on this rocket, and ultimately we want to test all the Orion systems in the deep space environment. So we'll be looking at the crew life support systems, the avionics, those are the flight computers, yeah. how we do deep space navigation and control in this deep space environment to prepare for Artemis II, currently scheduled to launch in 2024. And that will take humans um, on, a, on a flight test around the moon as well. So with Artemis I, you're actually going a bit beyond the moon to be clear. 40,000 miles. And Orion then is reusable. Right. So it's the same uh, craft that will, in further Artemis missions, be launched as well. Right. So Lockheed is working to, um, one, to reduce the cost and be able to to launch multiple um, Orion spacecraft. So there's five currently in work, ah. and they'll be reused on multiple missions. Um, and that's one way to reduce cost. It's, it's kind of, you take it back, um, it's like a car, you know, you, you take off some parts, you refurbish them and put them back on and we launch again. Like a car. Little, <laughs> maybe a little more complicated. Have you been inside? What does it feel like to be in Orion for those future missions that we'll see crews? I have not been inside, but I've I've been there when we're putting it together. Yeah. It's um, it's about the size of a, a college dorm room. So, um, like when I talk to my kids, I talk about imagine being in a college dorm room can take four astronauts. So with three of your best friends, you know, traveling for six weeks to the moon or or you know six months to go to Mars. Um, and one thing we talk about is how you have to bring everything with you. You can't stop in deep space and pick up a Slurpee. You've got to. <laughs> You've got to take yes, it all yes. with you. Um, and just what a great adventure that would be and coming back to tell the world about it. 
So speak to this idea that the moon is a first step to Mars. So you'd get a permanent base there. And to be clear, Orion does not ever land on the moon. It's an orbiter. And then you would shuttle to the moon, correct? That's correct. It takes us to the lunar vicinity. And then a lander would go down to the surface. And then what would you imagine humanity learning from a moon base that would allow it then to go to the red planet? I mean, there's so many things. Um, one, we're so far away from Earth. So being, you could, we can't be Earth-reliant. Um, there's all kinds of hazards, you know, radiation and um, extreme temperatures um, that we have to make sure our spacecraft and the humans can survive. Um, there's also really interesting science that we can do along the way. So during these missions, um, scientists want to, we're going to land on the lunar south pole. Um, And there are craters there from when the universe and the solar system was first formed. They haven't seen light in over a billion years. So um, the NASA scientists really, they want to get some of these core samples, they call it, where they dig into the the ground and um, bring those back to study them in Earth, figure out how the universe was formed, you know, look for the building blocks of life. So we want to do some of those things and... um, and learn, you know, along the way. That's right. So it, it is uh, a means to an end, certainly with Mars, but it is also its own lesson to be on the moon and to be in different places than we've been on the moon. You talk about the South Pole, for instance. If you're just joining us, I'm Ryan Warner, and this is Colorado Matters from CPR News. My guest from the Artemis mission, which is scheduled to launch Monday, is Heather McKay. She's engineering manager at Lockheed in Colorado. I'll say that uh, there are backup launch dates the following week if Monday doesn't pan out. But, you know, with 750,000 people, you sure hope it does, I think. (laughs) Uh, These missions are $4.1 billion apiece. Again, with the idea that Artemis uh, keeps going. What is it, each year? So like one mission a year? The goal is to launch once or maybe even more than once per year. Per year. Okay. Um, $4.1 billion a piece. Is it worth it? Well, I'd say, first of all, there are definitely things that we are doing to reduce the costs, not only on the NASA side, but on the Lockheed side, working to reuse the spacecraft, using lessons learned, things like augmented reality, using more 3D printed parts to reduce that cost. The goal is um, less than $2 billion per mission. Um Ultimately, less than two billion. My figures may be off then. Right, that's the goal. It's hard to put a price, I think, on Artemis One because the mission and the development costs are so tied together. But for these future missions, that's NASA's goal is less than two billion. I see. Um, and you talk about is it worth it? Yeah. I mean, so not only do we, you know, get to understand the secrets of the universe, um, but there are so many things that help us improve life here on Earth. Um, advanced technological discovery, you know, um, job job growth, um, economic development. This supports, um, there are companies in all 50 states, over 2,900 small businesses and suppliers that are working on this, and ultimately inspires the next generation of scientists and explorers, you know, the Artemis generation. You talked about augmented reality. How does that play into this? Our manufacturing team uses that quite a bit. So it's a way to more quickly visualize what's happening on the spacecraft. Uh And it's been able to reduce um, manufacturing times by as much as 85%. So you basically play out scenarios virtually to help with the engineering. Right. Before you put the spacecraft together, you um, can see a visual representation of it in, in your glasses to see where parts should go and how they fit together and what challenges you might come into putting the spacecraft together. 
Do I have it right that Alexa is going to be aboard this mission? Yes, there <laughs> are over 10 scientific payloads flying on the Artemis mission, and one is called Callisto, and it's a partnership with Lockheed Martin, Amazon, and Cisco. And it's a space-rated Amazon Alexa designed to see how this technology could be used with astronauts to communicate um, with the spacecraft. And you can actually, if you have an Alexa at home, you can say, Alexa, take me to the moon. And oh, the, you, you may have fired them across Colorado. Just so Yes, you know. <laughs> she'll give you mission updates as we go. So okay. um, very cool. Uh, that is cool. And I may be doing that, I guess, as soon as Monday. Is there any part of you that wishes you were aboard? Um, I, I definitely think it would be wonderful to be aboard and see the views, right? See Earth in the distance and the stars. Um, but I'm, I'm very happy on the ground okay. <laughs> making the spacecraft. You grew up in Colorado. I think you're from Littleton, which is actually where you work on the Lockheed campus. How did you get interested in space and science? So um, my mom worked at Lockheed Martin, and um, I went to Take Your Kid to Work Day, and I met former astronaut Bruce McCandless. And I heard him talking about being in space, um, and that's what made me decide to become an engineer. I went to the School of Mines and studied mechanical engineering and systems engineering, and then um, went to work at Lockheed. So that that take your daughter to work day or take your kid to work day that really was a transformational moment. Absolutely, I always loved you know doing math and science and those kind of things, but um, that was what cemented in my mind this I wanted to do engineering for a career. What do you tell your own kids what you do for a living? Um, well, so for Miles and Bridget, they're six and three. Um, mom building spacecrafts. I've always done that. It's just kind of table stakes. Um, <laughs> but we like to go outside. Um, they really inspire me. We go outside. They're the first to look up and find the moon. Um, and so we talk about what it would be like on one of these missions. You know, we talked about the great adventure it would be. Um, and they really, they're dreamers, right? And I feel like for us, as we grow up and become adults, sometimes we, we kind of forget about dreaming. We forget to look up and, and see the moon. And, um, and I feel like that's what the Artemis generation is about, um, and the Artemis program, defining this generation and this next great step in, the, in human exploration of deep space. So as I contemplate the moon into the future, uh, with the idea that there's some sort of lunar presence, colony may be too big a word, but like how, how big a presence is being imagined on the moon? I think we start out small. Um, you know, uh, we have to learn, how, one of the things that we have to learn is how we can um, make all the things we need. So there's talk about, you know, mining the lunar regolith, they call it in situ resource utilization. So how do we use that to make fuel um, and make oxygen and make all the things that we need? What was that word you used, regolith? Regolith, yes, so that's the, the lunar soil. That's what they call it, you know, oh. it has some really unique um, characteristics and features. And this is all the idea that because fuel is heavy and expensive, you can't bring everything with you. You're going to have to make some stuff on the moon. Right, I, I would think of it as kind of a camping expedition. Uh, to put it into perspective for, you know, maybe how big and the kind of things you're doing and um, learning as you go along the way and exploring. Is there more you wanted to say about the lunar presence and the science that will take place there? I thought I, I interrupted we you. We got it. Yes. Okay, I'm glad we did. <laughs> uh, to the Mars end of this, that is a much longer, more time-intensive proposition. Uh, talk about the difference between the moonshot and the Mars shot scientifically. Sure. And I think maybe we can talk about what we've done so far in deep space. Yeah. So we have been 135 shuttle flights 
building the space station, living and working um, in in space, right on the space station for 20 years. Um, But that's just a few hours back to Earth, six hours to get back to Earth. Going to the moon is a thousand times further than that. Takes several days, you know, a few days to a week uh, to get to the moon. Then it takes, you know, between six and nine months to get to Mars. So it's an order of magnitude further. And again, um, bringing everything with you, being able to prepare for any type of emergency you might have along the way. Um, there's a, uh, a long delay in communications, you know, back, um, we can't use GPS like we rely on here on earth. Um, we have these punishing environments and radiation and all those things. So those are some of the challenges we want to, um, want to work on at the moon so that we feel confident going to Mars. We've got about a minute left. What are you blue skying for future Artemis missions? Sure. Well, we're looking at, um, we work with NASA. So um, what is their mission objective and what can we do to um, modify the spacecraft to, to do those kind of things? Um, so we're looking at, you know, what are the different payloads that we need to bring? Um, and what is the science and how do we bring that back? Um, one of the things we've talked about with these core samples is how do we add a freezer to the spacecraft so that we can <laughs> can bring those back? Um, and the spacecraft's built. So we... Um, Uh, What we're going to do is we're going to put it in the lockers where the astronauts have their clothes, you know, um, in in food. After you've used that, you put this freezer in and bring it back. Um, So those are kind of the things we're looking at um, to help us with really this Artemis campaign and um, the future of human spaceflight. And every square inch, probably every square centimeter has to be planned out and is incredibly valuable. So the question of what goes where and whether there's room and how light it can be, uh, those all feel so important. Heather, this has been fascinating. And uh, I'm not sure what you say in the space world, but break a leg on Monday. (laughs) Thanks so much. Heather McKay of Littleton is Engineering Development Senior Manager for Lockheed Martin's Orion program in Colorado, which is at the heart of Monday's scheduled Artemis launch. Students across Colorado are all back in school this week. CPR education reporter Jenny Brundine checked in with some kids about what they like to learn and what could be better. She starts with a student at the beginning of his academic career. Jan Carlos is playing in Denver City Park with his little black dog the size of a teacup. I swear, he's way more interested in his dog than an interview. So today, he's a man of few words. First, how old is this first grader? Cinco. Five. What does he do in school? Read and write. And what does he like best about school? Playing with his friends, Jesus and Aaron. What's missing from school? Taking care of dogs, of course. I think we can all agree on that. And I should just let him get back to his sweet time playing with his dog. Let's jump to the far other end of the age spectrum. Mariana is starting her last year of school in Denver. She's excited about her senior classes and her last year of playing volleyball. I ask if she's played all four years. Yes, ma'am. She says she likes the team bonding. It's like a family. She's learned the nuances of good communication, too. 
The other thing she's looking forward to this year? My AP classes. She says the heavy reading and writing load in advanced placement classes gets her ready for college. What she and her friends don't like about school is the dress code. She says it's really strict for females. Jeans can't have rips. Shorts and tops can't be too short. What they don't get is a lot of us are trying to embrace ourselves because... If we're told to, like, cover up, we're not really confident in ourselves anymore. What's next in life is on her mind. She's thought about being a police officer or a real estate agent. Jobs where I can get enough money to be stable in my life. So I'm still thinking about it. Let's move to rural Colorado. I found Mason and his friend Anthem at a music festival in Marble. I feel like summer wasn't long enough. That's 12-year-old Mason. He confesses. I don't really like school, so. He says a lot of kids would rather be doing other things. School feels too fill-in-the-box for him. He says kids don't like being told what to do. His friend Anthem wants to be a car designer. So, yeah, I definitely like learning, but if it's with the wrong teacher, I hate it. What makes a teacher good? For me, it's just like their teaching strategy, like whether it's fun or strict or... And which do you prefer? Um, I like fun. Softball question, Jenny. Meantime, Tanner, a sophomore, is jazzed to be back at his alternative high school in Glenwood Springs. It gives me a lot of freedom to pick and choose what I want to learn. He's excited to learn more about the humanities, history, art, sociology, and especially theology. I have sort of a more nuanced view of religion as a whole. I'm definitely not an atheist, but I definitely have a more sort of almost pantheistic view. Yes. You hear me pause and stumble there. A sophomore talking about pantheism on a hot summer day in the middle of Marble, Colorado? Kids are amazing. I ask him why he thinks some kids don't like school. It's the reason he didn't like his old school. Regimentation, sort of forcing kids to learn things. Just sort of saying, memorize this, not telling them why they need to learn it, not telling them the context and what they're learning, just saying, memorize it, then spit it out on a piece of paper. I feel like that's really what turns a lot of kids off. Talking to kids, I learn a lot about their persistence, too. Coming out of a Target store one weekend afternoon, I bump into... Esmeralda. Esmeralda's going into fourth grade at a school in Aurora. Her favorite subjects are art and P.E. And I like to paint a lot. Like galaxies and animals? I like to paint that. Galaxies, cool. What she wants to get better at this year in school is math. If there's one thing Esmeralda could change about school, start at 9 o'clock instead of 8. I'm like a zombie when I wake up because I'm sleeping still. For two sisters in Grand Junction. Hi, my name is Olive Hamilton. I, wait, what's the next one? How old are you? And her older 10-year-old sister, Juniper, don't have to worry about getting up late. School is right across from their house. Commute time? Usually like one minute. Seven-year-old Olive is excited to learn how to write better this year. I just love school. Juniper likes everyone in her class this year, especially one boy with autism, which, she explains, lets him see the world differently. And he's really fun to play with and talk to. And I like having him in my class. I'm Jenny Brendine, CPR News. And I'm Ryan Warner, back in a bit. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.
If you want to name a mountain in Colorado, where do you start? What is the state's most iconic food? Why does Pena Boulevard have a bike lane? And does anyone use it? These are the kinds of Colorado questions we've gotten and answered in the past. I'm Corey Jones from the CPR Newsroom, and we want to hear from you, too. Ask your question at CPR.org slash Colorado Wonders and help us all discover more about our state of wonders. Douglas County, the wealthy neighbor of Denver to the south, has begun to see the tents and encampments that are the most visible signs of homelessness. Dugco leaders are trying to mount a response, but it may not be what their residents want. CPR's Andrew Kenny reports. Tammy Bozarth has worked as a Douglas County Sheriff's deputy for nearly a decade, but she's recently taken on a job that's new to her and new to the department. And that is the homeless outreach team. Bozarth is the very first deputy dedicated to the issue of homelessness in Douglas County. On a recent weekday afternoon, she loads into her unmarked Chevy Tahoe and looks over a computer dispatch screen. So right now we have some um, officers in District 4, which is Parker's jurisdiction. Uh, Somebody called in a suspicious circumstance, and uh, it appears uh, that there are subjects and a dog camping out between Christian Brothers and the 7-Eleven. That kind of sight would be commonplace in a city like Denver, where blocks of tents now line downtown streets. In Douglas County, a survey found only about 50 people experiencing homelessness on a recent night. But residents here have been quick to notice the recent appearance of encampments in parks and medians. Some days, the calls to the sheriff start piling up before 6 a.m. as people jog the greenways or check their doorbell cameras. And if they see something, someone that doesn't look familiar that's supposed to be in that neighborhood, they'll call us in as a suspicious person. They've also been calling their elected leaders and demanding a response. Deputy Bozarth was assigned to this new job this summer. But as her next stop shows, the county is really limited in what it can do right now. Bozarth pulls into a parking lot and finds several other deputies waiting in a grassy median. We're going to go down here in the trees um, and, and see what's going on down here. There are two people, two dogs, and a bike trailer nestled in the shade of a tree alongside a rushing four lane road. Bozarth introduces herself. So where do you guys live? I mean, are you like living in Lone Tree or you do you have an encampment somewhere else or do you kind of bounce around? So do you guys need resources or? She asks the couple if they need food or a place to stay. Sabrina Morgan says they do. They know Denver well, but they're not familiar with Douglas County. Sabrina's husband, Conrad, tells me they came down here in search of a place with less drugs, less crime, less people. People have a better chance at recovering from something if they have a lot of space. But Deputy Bozarth has to admit that there's not much help for them here. Okay. So here's kind of um, where we're at right now. We just started a homeless outreach team. There's not a lot of resources within Douglas County. We just hired some civilian navigators that are going to be building those resources. What she's describing is part of a larger effort throughout the county that has included a new task force, the creation of this civilian and law enforcement team, and even a proposal for a year-round tiny home shelter. But this approach to homelessness is not going over well with some in this conservative area, which became obvious at a recent town hall meeting. And I live in Douglas County for a reason, and I don't want that crap here. Send it back to Denver where it belongs. Thank you. At issue was whether to open the county's first year-round shelter. 
and opposition like this got the Board of Commissioners to pull back on the idea. Several people drew applause as they instead called for a crackdown. We didn't allow vagrancy 40 years ago, and we shouldn't allow it now. We can do it. You weren't allowed to camp overnight. You were moved. You were told if you didn't move, you were going to jail. But Sheriff Tony Spurlock said in an interview it wouldn't work financially, legally, or ethically to simply put homeless people in jail. Oh, no, I don't, because I don't think it's a crime to be homeless. I mean, uh, the, the circumstances are just horrible for them in their lives. And so it's not morally right to arrest people. Um, and, uh, and I don't think it's appropriate to create new statutes just to make it simpler um, so we don't have to create a, a solution. It also may be legally impossible for the county to force people to move along from public spaces. Federal courts have ruled that governments can only ban people from sleeping on public property if they can offer them a shelter bed, which Douglas County, again, doesn't have. If they did issue a camping ban, they would have to follow other, all the laws, which means we'd have to have a shelter. But back on the side of the road, the couple Deputy Bozarth is talking with are actually on private land, and the property owner wants the couple gone. Um, He does want you guys to move on, unfortunately. Okay. So um, do you guys need a ride anywhere? or? They ask for suggestions about where to go, but she's got none to give. So unfortunately, we don't have any homeless camps here in Douglas County. Um, Otherwise, I would gladly take you there. Um, So I would just get the property owner's permission and see if they're okay with it. Okay. The sheriff's office sometimes gives people rides to services or shelters in other cities since Douglas County doesn't have them. That's drawn harsh criticism from the mayors of Denver and Aurora, who believe their southern neighbor is essentially unloading people on them, shirking its responsibility on a metro-wide issue. Okay. Okay. All right. Well, good luck, you guys. Thank you. You guys have a good day. Bozarth leaves her card and lets the couple start figuring out their next steps. Sabrina Morgan starts packing up the bike trailer. I know it bothers a lot of people. They have to move and move and move, but uh, I've been homeless since I was 16, so I'm kind of used to it. Since arriving in Douglas County, Morgan has spent a night in jail on an outstanding warrant, and the couple had their makeshift trailer towed from an RTD lot. But Morgan's husband, Conrad, says they still plan to stay a while. How have you been treated in Douglas County so far? Good. Really good, actually. You know, I'm like really impressed with with how well the law enforcement has approached has approached me and my wife in a few different situations. He says he understands why someone called the sheriff's deputies on him. He came down to Douglas County for the same reason many people moved to Parker or Highlands Ranch or Lone Tree to get away from city problems. Chances are is that they moved they themselves moved to Lone Tree for a better life, you know, to get away from all the riffraff and, and drugs and whatnot. So, I mean, it's natural to want to just keep it at a arm's length, you know, so. But he says it's a lot easier to push homelessness away when you're not living through it. I'm Andrew Kenny, CPR News. And that is Colorado Matters for today, with thanks to our team. Tyler Bender, Carl Bielek, Anthony Cotton, Pete Kramer, Andrea Dukakis, 
Rachel Estabrook, Michelle Fulcher, Matt Hers, Michael Hughes, Carla Jimenez, Pedro Lumbrano, Patrice Mondragon, Shane Rumsey, Chandra Thomas Whitfield. And I'm Ryan Warner. You can follow us on Twitter at Colorado Matters. I'm at CPR Warner. We're on Facebook and Instagram and all the places. And we're a podcast. Thanks for spending time with us. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.